a little prelude before this final episode of Series 1. Thank you so much if you've tuned in or tracked through the whole series of Oriate over the spring into summer. Uh, really grateful for your participation in that way. Uh, it's been an interesting initial part of the journey. Look out in autumn time for our second series where we'll have interesting guests and trajectories to follow. We're grateful for your interest and we hope to have something for you soon. Enjoy this final episode of series one from Paul Watson as he talks to Stuart about secularity, the air that we breathe in Scotland and the UK today for those of us at our work. Take care. Welcome back to Oriate, uh, the Christian podcast that is looking at the meaning of ordinary everyday work from a Christian perspective. My name is Stuart Weir. I'm the host of the show. And this week, I'm delighted to introduce you to my friend, Paul Watson, who is pastor, who is rector at St. James Church in Bishop Briggs. Paul, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm fine. It's great to be here. Lovely to see you again and to take part in this great conversation. Yeah, man. It's, it's just so good to have you with us. Uh, the reason that I've um, set up this conversation today is because of my awareness of you doing a lot of work, a lot of thinking on your own, but also in groups, communal discernment around the atmosphere, the culture that we live and breathe today in Scotland and the United Kingdom, something we name as secularism or the secular age, the secular society. And you've done loads of thinking on this. Um, and just want to mine your brain, your thoughts, your ongoing wisdom as it's been coming to you. Uh, because what's so important, I think, for folks today is to understand this culture that we're part of and how the peculiarities and the unique bits and pieces of people's jobs of their everyday work are in that context. And so by understanding the context, the atmosphere, atmosphere that we live in, uh, I think we probably might be able to work more effectively as followers of Jesus to understand the craft of what it means to work as a follower of Jesus, given the context. So um, let me just throw you with one that I know that you've looked at and, and studied a bit just to get us going. I, I'm not into kind of chit-chat and the small talk, Paul. I just like to get <laughs> just just like to go straight in. So um, for those that are out there listening, there's talk of three different types of secularities in the Western world today, or Scotland and the UK. What are these three secularities? Can you tell us what they are and the differences between them? Well, it kind of stems from a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, who wrote a book in 2008 called A Secular Age. And he was the one that called Secularity One. It's basically the formal division of church and state. So there's a sense of kind of formal 
formal division of, of secular and spiritual powers and all that sort of that's kind of formal uh, structural uh, secularity as it were and then you've got secularity too which is more of an ideological secularity and that would seek to say that uh, people of a transcendent faith belief in transcendence um, that there is no real place for that in the public square that um, science a material philosophy uh, a materialistic understanding of the world and what we can see and hear and touch and so on um, that that is the dominant discourse and that things have to be proven uh, along those terms rather than in anything any appeal to transcendence and so our, our, our sense of purpose our meaning our value is all within the confines of this world and there is nothing outside of this or after this. Um, Secularity 3 is Taylor's kind of unique kind of contribution. He would say the reality is, is that we actually live in Secularity 3 in which he says everything is contested. Everything is contested, that there is no given dominant narrative, that everybody's view of things is a take, he calls it a take. And so he would say that people perhaps in, in power and positions of influence and authority, they seek to impose a secularity to spin on things. They spin a secular context, a secularity too, which has no space for transcendence, but as he pushes back on that and says, we should be pushing for a secularity three, which he says is actually the reality because he says, there are very few people at either end, very few believers who have no doubts at all, and very few non-believers who have no doubts either, all right? A, most people are somewhere in the middle. Most people, he says, he calls them, they are cross-pressed. So they're either believers who wonder whether what they believe is actually true or not, they have doubts about that, or they are non-believers who wonder and speculate sometimes, maybe there is something more to this after all. Because he would claim, Taylor, that most people deep down know that a closed eminent narrative, which is what you get in secularity too, that that explains everything, as you were talking about earlier on, the kind of atmosphere we live in, he calls it a social imaginary. If we have a social imaginary that closes down any question of transcendence, any possibility of life be more than just this and values of life be more than just pursuing your own sense of fulfillment. He says, people know that those narratives come up inadequate. They know that they just do not really carry the weight they're trying to bear. So he would, he would push for a secularity three in which religious transcendent belief is on par with anything else and it's contestable. Mm. Uh, so where do you think we are today? Which one of those do you think is the reality in Scotland? I think, you know, it depends what you mean by reality. Shoot, that's another whole <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think what you have, I think Taylor is accurate. I mean, I think what you have is a secularity to spin sometimes, because what you get often in a, in a public discourse, Within often to university settings, that I think that the kind of what we're finding in some of the university, even the kind of cancel culture and so on, yeah. part of that is a spin-off of the secularity too, in which you know there is no place for contestation. 
you know, um, yes. and, and, and there is a dominant narrative. Um, but I think the lived reality, actually, for most people on an individual level, is more of a secularity tree. I think there is, people live with a certain haunting. People live with a, I think particularly after this year and a half of COVID and so on, there is a sense of haunting that there may be more to things than this. And I find it with young parents in my church, and we have, I mean, they don't come to the congregation, but they, we have messy church, we have dads and toddlers and so on. And talking with those parents, you realize they want something more for their kids. They themselves may have come to church when they were kids or they may not have, but there is a sense that they know the dominant discourse they've been fed is, is inadequate. It doesn't, it doesn't, and I think, and I will talk about it more later on, but it comes up short, particularly in the areas of beauty and of brokenness. And I think where we are today is people are trying to come to terms with their brokenness as a society and as a world and as individuals. And we're really, we're scrabbling around trying to find a way through to live with our brokenness together and not take, tear each other apart. But also we're trying, we're coming up inadequate in trying to celebrate the beauty of what we have in this world and who we are as human beings. Mm. And I think Taylor's, Taylor's challenges to atheists is, for them to come up with a better and a richer story than those of us who come from a transcendent background to talk about beauty and brokenness in richer and more profound ways. They can't do it. We have a much richer story to tell. So I think that's the context we live in today. But there's particular Scottish dimensions which we will come on to, I'm sure, later on. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And so the third one sounds to me a little bit like a version of what used to be called postmodernism. Yeah. Would you say yeah, that's true or is he differentiating? It is, no, it is. It is. And pluralism as well. I mean, it's a kind of, it comes out of that, you know, mix and match spirituality. I think what has changed, two things have changed, I think. Um, Taylor calls it the Nova effect, and that is basically the internet. The internet has suddenly burst onto the scene uh, in this area of spirituality, postmodernity. Everybody's stories matter. And all the minor stories matter. And part of part of postmodernity's big insight was, was that you have to challenge the dominant narrative. Everybody's stories matter. And the postmodernity, I mean, the internet, social media has made everybody's stories on a level now. Yeah. So, so you can have, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ along with Star Trek, along with yoga, along with veganism, are all on the same level of explanatory power. You know what I mean? So I think. I think the first thing he called it the Nova that post-modernity has just been exploded um, through the internet and social media and through the silos, echo chambers of people working. You're hearing more and more due to some massive explosion of things, esoteric insights and beliefs you would never have heard of before suddenly everywhere, you know. Yeah. I think the second, the second difference from now is from post-modernity is that we live just in a much, much more uncertain world now. Because post-modernity yeah. was born at the end of the Cold War where you had the 1990s, I mean, towards the end of it and then into the 1990s, we had kind of capitalism had won. There's a lot of st relative stability. It may not have been great, but you kind of knew where things were. Yeah. Post 9-11 and post everything, you know, 2008 crash, COVID, we live in an incredibly uncertain world now. So I think those two things, the social media and the uncertainty of our context, means this is post-modernity on steroids, really. Yeah, it's fast. It's just... It's would you say that these, whichever secularity we're talking about, whether all of them have existed at some point or other and have been, a, or are a new dispensation of the one previous, are the children of Scottish Enlightenment? 
<laughs> I love what a great question. It's certainly a quite it's it is no doubt a part of Gaudi enlightenment. I think, I mean, basically, to put it in a nutshell, um, 500 years ago in Europe, you'd have been really, really hard pushed to find anybody who was an atheist. Yeah. I mean, it would have been almost impossible for people to conceive of the cosmos without recourse to the divine being. Now, they may have differences of opinion as to what that was. Yeah. But uh, whereas now, you know, it's a very different context. And what happened in that time has been the enlightenment, not only enlightenment, but before that, the Reformation. And this is where the Scottish dimension of the enlightenment, I think, has really come home to roost. Because Taylor would say, um, within a Calvinistic worldview particularly, all right, in a Calvinistic worldview particularly, three or four things were going on, which in Scotland kind of made a very potent mix, which we are still living with today, actually. Um, so the, the first one is the emphasis on the word, the emphasis on sola scriptura. So suddenly your intellect and your mind become supremely important mm. to understand. So what was previously the Roman Catholic priest before, he was, the, he was the gatekeeper to the sacraments, you know what I mean? Whereas now the reformed pastor is the gateway to the word. He's the gatekeeper to the word. So first of all, emphasis on the mind. Secondly, there was um, uh, a real pushback against the wider supernatural beliefs, superstitions of the Catholic Church. The wild, the medieval worldview saw the world full of demons and supernatural powers. And so there was no, there was no buffer between you Another. That's why they. That's why they had all these burnings of heretics and everything in those days, because they genuinely believed that they were protecting society from false teaching, which mm -hmm. could ruin people's lives and send them to any, and, and let loose all sorts of demonic powers and dark evil influences. So, the Calvinists pushed back against a wider, more complex universe in which there was these superstitions, demonic spiritual powers, and a very imminent. Could see about kind of transcendent world, trans the transcendent powers were very imminent, if you know what I mean, in that sense. Um, I think, thirdly, the Calvinists also put uh, they, they switched the expectations that the Catholic Church had on monks and priests and nuns to live, they switched it onto the ordinary Christian individual. So, certainly, ordinary Christian individual, they were expected to be the ones that kept a very holy life, that kept a pure life some of the benchmarks shifted hugely for ordinary punters. And so you had a sudden, uh, the, the first combination of all these things, you could say the huge sense of responsibility on the individual in kind of Calvinist Scotland to find their own way under the tutelage of the church to work hard in the Babers, you know, Protestant work ethic and all that. So this all came home to roost in the Scottish Enlightenment, which had its particular spin on pushing back against um, the medieval church worldview. And once you take what people like Hume and others took God out of the equation, what they were left with was man's, man was his own, was, he was a judge of everything. Yes. He was a judge of what was true. There was a pushback against churches, the church's um, emphasis on purity and holiness, as the Enlightenment wanted to celebrate, you know, the goodness of creation and all these kind of things. So the Scottish Enlightenment, had a particular kind of Calvinist and also reaction against Calvinist yes. theme to it, which had a, had a huge impact. Yeah, because the, the reason that um, I asked that question was because as you were describing Secularity 3 and you feel as if on an individual level that many Scots 
or Brits, let's say as well, um, are operating in that very self-autonomous, my take on life and reality, which yeah. is very much about lived experience and how yeah. I see and understand and feel things sounds very much like David Hume's affections. I am oh, yeah. working. I'm in the flow. I'm feeling it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. here. It, it, it's not orthodox, but I'm creating yeah. my new orthodoxy all in my own yeah, personhood. Yeah. yeah, that kind of seems to chime somehow. Or oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. And Taylor, Taylor called that. He called this age. He said, "Called this age the age of authenticity." Huh. So for us, for us now, um, spiritual experience, um, it, we. We are the judge of what there isn't, is or isn't true in that. So he would say, um, within an eminent frame, that the way that you look at things, people who are still trying to find a spirituality that fits within that, they are the judge of, they are the, they are the judge, they are the authority, the ultimate authority, really, of what is or isn't true. And if it's not true for them, then it's simply not true. Yes. And that is very much what humor is. That kind of goes straight back to humor. Huh, yeah, it's just such interesting connection. Um, what scope then do you think there is for followers of Jesus trying to incarnate lives of difference in all manner of sectors of society, all manner of workplaces, all levels of seniority or entry level, wherever they are at work with their colleagues? Do you think there is scope for... Uh, working followers of Jesus to live something out whilst being active, whilst at work, that could um, penetrate through into either the secularity two or the secularity three type Scott stroke Brit today. Yeah, I think so, Stuart. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I need to kind of back up a little bit before, before I answer that Hopefully, head on. Because yeah. there's, there's a couple of peculiarly Scottish dimensions to this secularity two and three thing. Um, uh, so um, one, of the, one of the main tenets of secularity today, secularity two particularly, is that um, life has to be fulfilled on its own terms. So there is and this cuts two ways. So there is no, there is no meaning beyond this world. So when Christians, when, when believers talk about making decisions that only make sense if you posit that there is a future life after this one, mm. that it's okay to die to self because you believe that you will be risen again from the dead one day. You know, when, the, when we see ourselves as part of a bigger meta-narrative, which of course the postmodernism hated, you know. Um, so... Uh, when we talk about um, as believers, when we say things which only make sense by positing a bigger story within which this earthly one is put, people feel very threatened by that because yeah. it doesn't make sense. The other way it doesn't make sense is, is when Christians, either by their example or by the, what they're challenging people to do, um, call for lives that have elements of sacrifice or foregoing things, okay? Um, uh, 
in this world. Again, people are threatened by that because we should be able to fulfill our potential and our meaning and pleasure and happiness in the terms of this world. So when you when you call people to forego, um, well, I mean, lots of different examples. I mean, to forego financial success, you know, to give all their money. Yes. To something, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, or when you when you ask people to give all their time in a costly way. Yes. Um, when you ask people to abide by you know, you know, more, more prudent, perhaps, sexual behavior. You know, all these things seem, they don't make sense to people today in the sense of, because they, they, they're talking about sacrifices, which cut again. In a Scottish context, this is doubly difficult because you have two things in the Scottish past. You have the Catholic Church with its legacy of guilt for many Catholics, okay? And yeah. then you have the Protestant denomination, the Calvinist Presbyterian denomination, with their emphasis on the body being bad yes, and uh -huh. the mind being good, kind of neoplatonic neo stuff. Yes. So there is within, I think, Scottish culture today, a real, now this, a lot of this is not conscious, but it is deeply embedded within our public life. I think from the late Victorian times onwards, a real resistance to that Catholic legacy and that Calvinist legacy, both which seem to thwart the fulfillment of life, mm. both which seem to negate our humanity in different ways. Yeah. And so you have the kind of traditional dear Scott, you know what I mean? <laughs> or the dear Scottish elder who's worried that somebody there is having some fun somewhere. You know what I mean? It's that <laughs> caricature and Holy Willie's prayer and all that kind of thing. You know? So <laughs> yeah. when it comes to Scots in the workplace today, I think there are there are some, and we'll talk about maybe this more in detail later, but I think having bearing that in mind. What we can do as Christians, I really believe, is to demonstrate, um, I think coming back to that beauty and brokenness thing, that we can be honest about life. It is messy. That our lives are messy. Our faith is messy. It's contestable. Everything is contestable. I've not got all this sewn up. I've got tons of questions as well. What are your questions? Let's get our questions on the table. There's a sense in which we can show that we as believers, and they perhaps as non-believers, whatever you want to call them, that actually we're all facing similar dilemmas. Yeah. But we're facing them perhaps from a slightly different vantage point, but the dilemmas are the same, which is how do we get through this world? And how do we keep going, keep a family together? And how do we talk about beauty and brokenness in a way that's authentic? Huh. I don't want to come back on that too, but I've got a lot more I can say about that. But I yeah, think that no. is I that's think that's of openness. fascinating, isn't it? it that um, in this age of authenticity, our culture isn't expecting us to have it all sewn up. Um, no. our, our mates at the workplace are not expecting a, a cogent, watertight system of, of faith and belief <laughs> from us. Um, they want to know that we're not a robot. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And so the commonality there, this commonality... So I can share my broken, half-hearted or frustrated efforts at dealing with this thing that everybody yeah. seems to have to deal with yeah. uh, in this way. And I'm claiming it as Christian, kind of, because yeah. I'm trying to do it this way for these reasons could actually generate possibly some good traction in Scottish workplace. I think so. And I think what you have there is a, a great quote from Sam Wells, actually, he talks about 
and this kind of conversation, it's better to start off with what is more or less honest and not so much what is more or less true. Uh-huh. I think I think with our with our friends and our colleagues, you know, honesty, having to have an honest conversation about what is honest is a better place to start than immediately going in with what is what is or isn't true. The yes. truth is important. I mean to get we need to we need I mean that is part of the issue. We have to we have to demonstrate that actually some of these questions do matter yeah. and there are better and worse ways of approaching it. But it's a bit like what Tim Keller says. He says, we, what we need now is an emotional apologetic in which we demonstrate, and perhaps, you know, through our conversations with people, through talking about beauty and brokenness in Christian terms and theistic terms, we get to a point where people, they're attracted to it. And they get to the point where they want it to be true. <laughs> they want the gospel to be true. Yes, uh-huh. You know, that was, so, that was so, my rather story. Than, rather than convincing them, of the gospel, first of all, and then they discover how great it is, you actually demonstrate, look, this is, you know, amongst my brokenness and my, and my you know, questions I still have, there is a real richness here of community and of explanatory power and, uh, I mean, Alan de, you know, Bouton says, well, there's explanatory power here, there's a, there is a sense of, of, of being able to talk about things like beauty and brokenness with much greater depth and nuance, and a much bigger picture and all these things. Mm. It's a compelling, much, much richer story. It really, really is. Yeah. So you kind of try to captivate folk with that. And then they say, I wish it was true. <laughs> you know? I wish you and then you can say, Well, look, it is true. I really think it is true. You've not got lots of questions. So it's, it's, it's kind of that way in. It's a much soft, it takes the edge, it takes the sharp edge off of confrontation and it softens them to make conversation easier, I think, Stuart. Yeah. Just, I just find that so interesting because, how long ago was it? Well, it was 1995. And what you've just described in a way, I'm feeling like you've described my story, the beginning of faith, because actually I was wooed into following Jesus because of the lifestyles of the people I was sharing a house with. Right. And so coming to terms with the God-man Jesus of Nazareth was a second, maybe even a third question down the line. I I was so impressed with lived lives. Yeah. The way they ate, how they looked after one another, how they um, took life seriously, um, you know, a whole yeah. manner of things. Those were the clincher things for me. Yeah. I was willing yeah. to do my theology after that because I saw the difference it made in lived experience. And that was in the yeah, mid-90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, funnily enough, to go on a thing you mentioned earlier, right when the internet came on the scene, right yeah, sure. when the internet came on the scene. So yeah. timing-wise, yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah, 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 very interesting. I think also, though, just to follow on from that, you know, one key difference between um, those of us working, I'm just keeping it as kind of theistic, but I mean, yeah, yeah, for, I mean for Christians particularly, but I think, I think particularly for followers of Jesus, um, you see, secular ethics is based on mutual, mutual reciprocity. So, so the furthest sexual ethic, I mean, so secular, not secular, secular ethics, the furthest secular ethics can go is that 
you do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So there is this kind of, you know, there is this kind of uh, reciprocity. Agape love just busts all that apart. <laughs> it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the reciprocity. When I used to do street pastors up in Aberdeen, you know, it's the biggest question of just why are you guys doing this? Why are you at four o'clock in a November, you know, November morning? helping me home when I'm absolutely stoned out of my mind, you know, and, and, and I think it's the generosity, sacrificial love of Christians, which is, has not changed down to the century, and that's one of the big insights of Tom Holland in his recent book, Dominion, which is a fantastic overview. Because one of Tom, you know, he's an agnostic guy, one of his big takeaways is that Christianity, his point is, is that Western society is, is irredeemably seeped in Christian culture, Secular culture is a is a child of Christianity. There's just no doubt about that. You know, it's just that Reformation life I mean kind of led to that. But at the heart of it lies that each individual person is so important. Each mm. individual person is worth sacrifice, each individual person is of infinite value. And so for Holland, he would say that the way that the Christians, particularly from say Apostle Paul onwards, the way that Paul emphasized his weakness the way that he emphasised the care of those who are marginal to society, a church like Collins, for example, and others. This was radical stuff at the time, and it's radical stuff today. I think Christians, I'm not asking for anything from you, I'm just here to care. Now, we've got to be careful. We're not always just the do-gooders, I don't mean that. We want people to be able to give back as well. But there's something about that non-reciprocal relationship in which we are willing to take the initiative, we're willing to take the risk, we're willing to be vulnerable, we're willing to be generous of spirit, which is incredibly attractive and radical today. Mm. You mentioned Alain de Botton, who's just yeah. such, I love reading his stuff. He's got a great yeah. book on work for anybody who's um, looking for something very uh, stimulating but enjoyable, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. But he's also written this other book called Religion for Atheists. And and I've got shelf up, here, yeah, yeah. I wasn't really sure. I had a, an assumption in my mind as to what that title meant, but he basically wrote this book looking on at the impact that religious or religions have made on every sector of society. Yeah. Work, the working world. And he was like, secularism, secularists have never been able to pull off yeah. The Christian yeah, yeah. faith or the Islamic yeah, yeah. faith or the Jewish faith or Eastern faiths have been able to do. Yeah. Let, me, let me quote you a little bit here from this book and then I can pick a question out here. He says, religions merit our attention for their sheer conceptual ambition for changing the world in a way that few secular institutions ever have. Yeah. They've managed to combine theories about ethics and metaphysics with a practical involvement in education, fashion, politics, travel, hostelry, initiation ceremonies, publishing, art, and architecture, a range of interests which puts to shame the scope of the achievements of even the greatest and most influential secular movements and individuals in history. Oh, I mean, it's just... And he writes this book and basically picks out things, particularly from the Christian and Jewish faiths, practices, which he seeks to basically go, look how well they're doing them. Is there some way that we can basically borrow them for ourselves as secular atheists? Yeah. Because they're just so good. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. 
So I'm just yeah. wondering, like, do you think, if you look at Scotland today, do you think there are particularly particular areas of society, particular sectors, uh, crying out for Christians to transform them in the ways that Alain de Botton just described in that quote? Consciously, no. I don't think any sector of society is actually consciously desperate for Christians to step in and help. You know what I mean? <laughs> At a conscious level, that is not there. But I think what lies behind your question really is are the sections in the society which really need that? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think, that I think, is actually what I'm at. Sorry, that yeah, is what yeah. I meant to ask you. There's, yeah. nobody, there's nobody beating at my door saying, come and help me. You know I mean? <laughs> no, no, of course not. Although having said that, it is interesting. I mean, I think mean, that's a conversation for another day. I mean, there are times, um, you know, as a, a school chaplain, for example, for, for things that can be really, really tough in a school where sometimes we are called in in tragic situations to hold a space, you know, and to to have a language which somehow, they said to me, Paul, we trust you to do this because we know that you, you won't be too religious. You know what I mean? So it's, I mean, it's, I mean I, you know, I, I have, um, uh, you know, in people, high school teachers talk to me about how parents are just so lost today. They just don't know, they can't say no to their kids because they don't know, they look to the school to give them values. Yes. Where they used to look to the church to give them values, look to the high school to give them values, and after raising the kids, and it's just, everything is just so at sea. And the school, I mean, the school themselves, that's not our job, we're not here to do that, you know. So I think, I think in, in, in trying to help parents make sense of how to raise kids today, the church really has something to offer, partly because we are, despite what society may think, we are pretty good at nuanced conversation. We do nuance well. In a healthy denomination, a healthy church community, where we're not in our silos, where we're willing to ask questions, willing to listen to those who are different, churches can do complex, nuanced discussions that are desperately needed in our society, I think better than anybody, actually, because... Mm. We try to hold them with a measure of respect for the other. And we, we hold them in a sense of, I could be wrong here because God is bigger than all of us. And I think it's that sense of openness to, to transcendence, which helps put our own individual agendas in a better context and helps us to see them. It is all contestable. And we should be comfortable with that as Christians. So I think, first of all, Christians can model Believe it or not, and society may not realise this, but I do honestly, now obviously there are many churches, unfortunately, who might not be able to handle those conversations. But within an Episcopal context, an Anglican context, you know, we, we do believe in scripture, reason, and experience, a tradition. Now, for me, personally, as an evangelical, I would say scripture is primary to that, and then you mediate reason and tradition with that. Um, Others of my Episcopal colleagues put them all on the same level playing field. But, but there's an interaction between the three. And I think as churches within the Baptist denomination, there's a big emphasis on the freedom of conscience of the, indiv of the individual believer, you know? Yeah. And so that we can model for Scotland how we can have conversations about complex, difficult, messy, broken subject about how we do life. We can do that. So I think, I think that's one one thing that we can do, I think second, we can point a way beyond this idea of reciprocity and mutuality. We can point beyond that. Because otherwise you get into a, 
everything become contract everything become contractual yeah and i want to get beyond contractual relationships in which relationships are relationships of risk and of trust and i've been willing to let go of outcomes it's a very profound insight that christians have you have to let go of your outcomes and you have to say you do what you do you say what you say but there's no guarantee it's going to work out the way you want it to so you take the risk you take the risk of having a difficult awkward conversation and you take the difficult risk of making sacrificial gestures across some of these bitter cultural war boundaries i think i think the difficulty today is that so many christians retreat into their silo in these cultural wars i don't know the cultural wars in scotland are as, as bad as they are elsewhere but they have the potential of becoming that way and it'd be really good for us not to take that not to let that happen so i think the second thing is is getting beyond the um the rest of party everything's contractual you yes. know i think a, a third thing and i'm kind of watching it, a, a third thing i think that that the church the other thing the church can do I mean, there's lots of other things but other thing i want to emphasize um is that the church young people particularly this goes back to a, a, an author called ernest becker writing in the, in the, in the 1970s and he was talking about the, the youth movement of that time how they had become disillusioned with the heroics the society was offering them. Every society offers its young people, if you do this, that, and the next thing, you will be a valued member of our society. Mm, we call mm -hmm. that kind of hero system. Yeah. And, and young people question that, and particularly after COVID-19 is happening more often than ever. Our young people face a much more difficult future than we ever did when I was, I'm in my 50s now. So I think the church can offer an alternative narrative, an alternative set of values to the cultural dominant narrative. And the final... The final uh, one is, and this is come back to a thought, a thought that Alain de Breton said. He said, most artists, most creatives who are trying to describe or explore the transcendent, all right, what you would call the transcendent, all right, have to do that as a very solitary exercise that comes at great cost to them personally. Mm. Think of Van Gogh and other, you know what I mean? There's, there's, yeah. there's this he, would, he says the church, as an institution, is the only institution which is set up to celebrate and explore the transcendent. And he says the church offers the support that these lonely artists and creatives need because we are trying to do that as a collective together. And I find that the whole area, I think, I find a fascinating insight of his that in the area of the arts and the creative church, rather than be than a Calvinist background to try to squelch all this stuff down and actually we can release it because we have a richer more wonderful story to have a beauty and brokenness yeah that's really interesting it actually reminds me of uh christians who forgive me for the pun came out of the woodwork in the arts and crafts movement uh -huh. i'm thinking in particular of oh what's his name Oh, goodness, his, his name's gone right out of my head. Uh, it'll come back to me in a minute. Uh, but he was alongside uh, Ruskin, John Ruskin. Oh, yeah. And this, what you've just described, sails quite close to what they were thinking at the time. Yeah, they were, absolutely. absolutely. So you look at the architecture of Pugin, for example, who was trying to aesthetically, beautifully, convey the transcendence of god through architecture and the, yeah, wow. the architecture itself gives you an experience of yeah, the yeah. God who we yeah, discover yeah. in jesus christ so 
Um, you know, Ruskin was a poet, he was a painter, he, you know, he was a writer. Um, and they expected in that beauty, and that, and that was really interesting because actually that was a reaction against industrialization. It was absolutely a whole romantic movement, and absolutely. Um, and There's nothing it, you want to understand. As, well, I mean, this is fascinating because they're they're responding to a different culture than the one that you have thus far uh, depicted for us in this podcast, where Scotland, where the UK is today. And so, but there may be some resources for us that we can draw from in people like... Yeah, I think, I think the people. thing we have in common with that, with that kind of 18th century kind of in, industrialised society is that that was very much a reductionist society. Life was reduced to industrial, you know, that kind of early industrialization. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the romantic movement was pushing, and also pushing back against the Enlightenment too, which was over-rationalizing everything. Yes. So I think what we're having today, I would suggest, I mean, kind of post-modernity has kind of, kind of spawned its own children now, because now actually post-modernity is the kind of dominant narrative of its own, you know, and, and, it's, and it has become reductionist. Yes. It has become reductionist in some ways. And so what we're looking for now, what people are pushing back against, I would say, people of theistic beliefs, theistic registers, uh, we push towards an open, eminent frame rather than a closed one. I think that's as far as we can go with our colleagues. Christ will come along the road later on, if at all, for people. But we want to push for a closed, eminent frame rather than an, an open, eminent frame rather than a closed one. We want to keep saying... This is inadequate. This doesn't explain everything. There's more to life. There's a haunting. Listen to the haunting. What is going on there? Just like Ruskin did way back in the Romantics did then. It's huh. the same thing come around again. It's different. It's a steroids now because of their social media and internet. And everything. Yeah. I, I love that though because there is no sense in which the, the working Christian needs to solve everything, needs to do everything at once, needs to squeeze everything into one conversation needs you know no. the, the whole idea of walking together journeying together those of us that have been influenced by modernity by yeah. um a certain way of understanding the faith that feels under pressure to yeah. unpack this world and scare the living daylights out of our colleagues <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. when given an yeah. opportunity to speak in and just share life, you know? So that, that's yeah, yeah. so useful, really helpful yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, the letters to sent to the church in Corinth earlier. Yeah. There are yeah, yeah. other parts of scripture that followers of Jesus, you think, provide us um, particularly... Uh, well-timed resources for us here and now, given what you've shared already? Yeah, I do. I think, I think, I think the, the Psalms are great. Of course. The, you know, the Psalms are great. I think we need to dig into the Psalms. At the moment, I spent about two months already just working my way through the Psalms, reading nothing else at the moment, just really wow. trying to base my really absorb them and all their, all their messy glory. You know, so I think the Psalms, and even Job, but stuff from Isaiah as well as suffering servant passages there. So there's this deep, there's deep wisdom there, deep lived wisdom about living life. Because uh, don't forget, the Bible was written at very, very uncertain times as well. Humanity was facing, you know, the people of Israel faced very uncertain context, which is, you know, 
people feel very uncertain today as well. So I think the Psalms are great. I think within the New Testament, I do think, you know, Second Corinthians 4 and 5, where Paul's talking a lot about the weakness and, and you know, the spiritual man and, and, and uh, outer body being wasted. There's a lot of stuff in Second Corinthians 4 and 5. Also, First Corinthians 13, obviously, the, the, you know, the centrality there of, um, of the importance of love and of that sacrificial love. I think Romans 7 and 8 are a great couple of chapters to use back to back, the groaning of creation, you know, and, and, and who can save us from this in that sense of building up. Sense of, yeah. I think Revelation 2021 20, is great. The end of Revelation, that vision, that great vision of, a, of the healing of the nations, you know, it's just big. And of course, parts of the gospel. I mean, I think one of the big things is trying to reclaim Jesus again, away from 22,000 years of history. I think people have got so much loaded on the person of Jesus. And I just um, want people to encounter him again for the first time, but mm. also particularly his challenge to follow him. I think so much of the age of authenticity makes a mistake of, I am the sole judge of what is right or isn't. And what we're called to do with Jesus is to follow him. So yes. we're not making him part of our story. We're called to be part of his story. Yes. And I think that is a very important part. So I think there's quite a lot in the, in the scriptures that we may want to look at, get the right versions of, you know, some of the, trying to get the right wording for some of these passages um, yes. and making ourselves familiar with them. Yeah, that's immensely helpful. And I think what you just mentioned laterally there in terms of, you know, we're actually asked to uh, become a version of him. There's something yeah. very deeply countercultural about that, that yeah. call, you know, that ask that Jesus has of people, yeah. uh, which is yeah. going to be, it's usually challenging, but it needs it to. Is. That's the that's the real rub, right? <laughs> of yeah, of yeah. faith and culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are probably yeah. people, could be people listening who have responsibility uh, for either uh, helping other Christians develop, maybe leading small groups, maybe even leading churches themselves that are listening to this yeah. podcast. Um, how do you think church leaders can help people address their daily work surrounded with this atmosphere of secularity? And authentically Christian ways today, Paul? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question, Stuart. Um, I certainly feel the burden of leadership about in this area. This is why I'm paying so much attention to it the last year. And I've got a network up now called Pastors in a Secular Age, which meets once a month. Leaders of small churches all around Scotland, lots of different denominations, and acknowledging that no matter where we are in the theological spectrum, we're all facing similar challenges, you mm. know. Um, How can people so join I, that? How can people join that? If they're well, people can just contact me, to contacting you, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> That's fine. Got a, we've got a, we've, we do have, no, it's very slimmed down, um, but we do have a kind of an email address, which is simply pastors in a secular age at gmail.com. So it's Great. a very simple, pastors in a secular age, all one word, at gmail.com and right. we're starting again in September. We have a one hour, one hour session once a month, third Thursday of each month at 3.30 to 4.30. We have a different speaker each time, 25 minute input, 25 minute breakout group, 10 minutes at the end, we all go home again. And it's just great actually, very practical. And so good, where people can explore the answers to that question. Yeah, absolutely, pastors and secretary. But just coming off the bat, just as we draw towards the end, Stuart, I think there are three or four things that pastors, church leaders, small group leaders can do to help people. I think, first of all, is to acknowledge that what we have as Christians 
is what I would call a robust take on things. All right. It's, now this sounds, I mean, I, you know, I grew up overseas, I grew up in a multi-faith multi environment, I've lived in Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist countries, you know, um, this is not about being pluralistic, it's not about that, it's acknowledging the reality of the fact that our faith is a faith, it's defensible, it's coherent, it doesn't sew every loose end up, it doesn't square away every circle, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is coherent and it's got it's defensible and and it's a richness to it but ultimately it is a take on things yes and it's contestable it's not it's not uh, self obviously obvious it needs unpacking and needs lived out so i think helping people to have the appropriate framework and not to be afraid of the fact that there are other people who disagree with them, that it was like that from the very first. I mean, from the very beginning of the early church, it was always contestable. Yes. It's just this kind of, you know, a millennia and a half of Christendom that so this is the way, the only way. Uh, but that's point. actually quite alien to the, to the way faith operates. Yeah, good point. So I think it's helping people become comfortable with the fact that you can have a, you can have a robust, serious, committed, costly faith that you will sacrifice for but still live with the questions that I realize that there are other takes in reality and some of those other takes are pretty okay. Now, I think mine is the best. I think there's something compelling here, not because I think it's the best, but I take responsibility for my faith and for my, I think for me personally, I think Christianity, one reason I'm a Christian is it's just got the best understanding and tackling of human sin and brokenness than, any, than anything else out there. It really, really does. This is the second thing I want to talk about, and that is, I believe, so first of all, we can help people become confident in a faith that lives in a plural context, all right? Um, secular three context, but it's incontestable. The second thing is, though, is that we actually do have the resources within our faith to tackle the dark stuff. Mm. The dark stuff other people want to avoid because they don't know how to start tackling it. They don't know how to start really acknowledging the fact that humans are really, really wasted. We are really messed up as a species. We are beautiful, but we are seriously messed up. Yeah. And a lot of people don't want to do that because they think once we start unpacking that, where are we going to go? Yeah. Now, if you're living with a, with a closed, imminent frame in which you, we as humans have to find all the answers and find meaning purely within this world, then you're never gonna, you know, you're not gonna want, you're not gonna really honestly look at that question. You're gonna deal with it in a buffered, you know, arms distance kind of way. And this is where psychology has replaced theology as an explanatory. Yes. With psychology as a religion of the 20th, 21st century, we try to explain these things. I think as Christians, we can look at the dark stuff because we have a hope. We have a horizon of hope, and we believe that we are. We don't have to just stand on our own two feet. And that we do have a God who's entered into this brokenness and entered into it. And just one example of that would be when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, you've got to ask yourself, you know, why didn't God give himself a better backstory? You know, these people known him for 30 years and they still rejected him. You know, for yeah. me, that is one of the most powerful stories and death and descriptions of the incarnation I've ever known. Huh. That yeah. God himself lived in a community for 30s and they still rejected him. Yeah. 
And you think God could have done a better job of developing a better witness detection to show you, you know? But it didn't. Anyway, so the third thing, and we are, I know we're kind of running out of time, finally, Stuart, but I think the third thing we can really say is to really embrace the cross-pressed nature of life. That we have doubts, and lots of people who don't come to church, they have tons of doubts of their own as well. Yeah. And that we're all facing similar dilemmas. We're all facing similar pressures, and we're feeling pressed from different directions about the draw to transcendence, and yet the pull to the brokenness of our lives. Wow. And I think that a very people try to divide it up in the culture wars into hard fundamentalist believers and hardcore atheists. That is actually that is just simply not true. There are very few people who are fit into both those camps. Most folk are somewhere swirling in the middle. Yes. And I think we as Christians can take our place there with courage and confidence and humility at the same time. Wow. Paul, thank you so much. I, um, As you said, time has, has run out for us, but I am so grateful for just how deeply you have been trying to come to terms with where we live, with how people live i'm so impressed with how much commitment you have to uh, coming to terms with how people think and work and live and equally how impressive how captivating god is in the person of jesus christ and Absolutely. how on earth we bring uh, what we read in our scriptures into this complex world which we don't understand fully all the time in yeah. a live environment i you are to me a jedi master at this and i i love it i love it and i love the fact that you know that it's not all sorted and you've not got it all boxed up and but that you're constantly working on it and i just absolutely i think that um our listeners here on Ori will have a real treat listening in this time. And I'm just really... I had a, I had a bit of a... I'm not saying this is a word from the Lord, but a few days ago, I had a little thought popped up to my head. And it was... And I hope you readers will take this in the right way and not load too much onto this image. But it was a word... It's a picture. It was, it was God looking at me, all right? Looking down at me and saying, you thought you could understand all this. You've got to be joking. Absolutely <laughs> laughing his head off. I think we just have no idea the ballpark we're playing. You know what I mean? Jesus has come to show us the way, but it, it's a trip of a lifetime. It's a trip of a lifetime. And many years ago, I just said to Jesus, you know, I am just really, really curious to see what you do with my life if I give it over to you. And it's curiosity is what keeps me going today. So pastors in a secular age at gmail.com. If any of you readers want to, listeners want to contact me, that's the best way to do it. Easy to remember, pastors in a secular age at gmail.com. Anybody can do that. Thanks Brilliant. for the chance. Oh, well, listen, I'm going to put that email address in the description for this cast uh, so that you don't forget it. Paul, just an absolute privilege to chat to you. I always come away. Um, energy filled and glad i'm alive glad i know you and uh, getting to know you better thanks for tuning in to Ori everyone this time round and uh, we hope to speak to you soon bye now <laughs>